0: right, well go ahead, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we were looking at Jesus right in the middle of a party. Uh, Jesus called Levi to himself, and Levi called all of his friends, made Jesus a great feast, and we began uh, really what will characterize this next series of, excuse me, got all choked up at a party, What will characterize some conflict passages as Jesus begins to uh, encounter the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, we're learning a little bit about these guys, aren't we? Because uh, we're seeing that their convictions about life, their spiritual practices and rhythms are being confronted by Jesus. Jesus has a very different way of doing ministry than these religious leaders have. The religious leaders we saw last week were very separatist in their approach to their religious life, that they broke people down into redeemable and irredeemable, people who are insiders and outsiders, and it was all according to their standards. So they said, if you do life like us, you're in. If you don't, you're out, and you've got no hope with God. So the Pharisees, as kind of the religious conservatives of Jesus' day, were the ones who were the gatekeepers to a lot of religious um, welcome, and Jesus comes onto the scene and starts forgiving people. He has the authority to make paralytics walk and to forgive their sins and invite tax collectors into relationship with himself, and he's he's disrupting the social context. He's really messing with a lot of the unspoken social and religious rules of the day, which I, I, I love that about Jesus. He just, he, he has a way of disrupting things. That's my, your understatement for the day. Uh, but what Jesus is going to do here in this passage, if Jesus can be critiqued for welcoming tax collectors and sinners and enjoying a feast, he can also be critiqued for failing to practice some of the most important religious, conservative, spiritual practices of, this, of his day. And the Pharisees are going to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, everybody is, is doing uh, religious life like this. Everybody has these spiritual practices that are incredibly important to our society. They're incredibly important for your social and religious cred in the eyes of the people that, we're, that are in our community, and you're not doing them. So Jesus, what is the deal? And this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees is really going to expose the fact that the Pharisees have some spiritual disciplines that they're doing and practicing wrong. So you're always in trouble. When, you know, one of the things that you recognize just in church is that no matter what your background is, no matter where you've come from, you are formed by a lot of the religious and spiritual and church experiences that you've had, right? And you... Uh, walk through life trying to make sense of the Christian community and you will run into people who have different spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines than you do. Some people like to go out into nature and read the word and connect with God. Some people like to be in a dark room with a single lamp. Some people like to do a whole variety of things in the ways that they connect with God. But when Jesus comes on the scene with the Pharisees, what he's going to do is highlight the fact that their spiritual practices, their religious devotion and disciplines are inappropriate. And they're going to be inappropriate for two reasons. Really because of the timing and really because of their focus and why they're doing what they're doing. So you're going to see in this passage here, there's a wrong way to pursue your spiritual disciplines. Isn't that, that's, that's kind of a landmine statement, isn't it? You go, what am I doing wrong, Steve, that you're going to tell me I'm doing wrong? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Jesus is going to tell you. Uh, and then you'll get, uh, this is, now. let me say, in all honesty, this is a really difficult passage for me because, man, I see myself all over this passage. So let's learn together. Amen? Okay, let's pray and ask God for his grace. Luke, uh, if you're not there, you haven't found it, Luke 5, chap- uh, chapter 5, verse 33 to 39 is where we'll be. Let's pray. Father, for just these few minutes as we look into your word, would you encourage us? Would you shape us? Would the ways in which we uh, fail to give attention to what is happening in our spiritual life, be exposed this morning? Would you teach us and shape us? Would you challenge us to be the men and the women that you desire for us to be? And would we leave this place uh, more confident of your grace and your goodness in forgiving sinners? We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, Luke chapter five, verse 33. Y'all there? Three of you are there, that's okay, that's all I need. 533, and they said to him, if you notice how this passage works, the they is the Pharisees who've been asking Jesus this question. What you're going to see, really, if you circle the word disciples, you found one mention of disciples in the previous passage and two in this one. And it's going to characterize how the Pharisees are talking to Jesus. Because remember, the Pharisees last week decided to critique Jesus' disciples for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus came off the bench, right? And he said, no, 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 we've got something to talk about because physicians come to the people who are sick. So now what you're going to face is the Pharisees asking now a similar question to Jesus. We're still in this back and forth with Jesus where the Pharisees' convictions are coming face to face with who this person is who now teaches with authority, who now forgives sins, who now takes sinners on the outside and welcomes them into relationship with themselves. So we pick up in the middle of a conversation. So here's what they say. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now you've got three groups of disciples. You with me so far? You got the disciples of John, you got the disciples of Pharisees, and you got the disciples of Jesus. And the Pharisees have a problem because one of these things is not like the others, This group of individuals over here following Jesus are doing things that nobody else is doing. They're doing things that the religious elite and the religious conservatives of the day aren't doing. They have spiritual discipline practices that don't line up with the most religious people of the day. Now, can religious people get bothered when that doesn't happen? Yeah, religious people can get bothered. You're not in line you're not doing the things that you ought to be doing. So let's, let's just consider and put in our mind's eye these two groups of people, the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John. Let's handle the disciples of John first. The disciples of John, uh, now just think about John the Baptist in Luke. John is arguably a pretty ascetic individual, is he not? I mean, when you're wearing camel's hair, eating bugs and honey, and living in the wilderness, you're different. You're a different kind of individual. And John's ministry, we saw, was empowered and influenced by the Word of God. The Word of God came to John. Well, here's John, distinctly different from virtually everybody in his, you know, social life, if he has one of those. He's different than the people in the cities. He's different than the people in the temples. He's different than the tax collectors. He's different than the Pharisees. And everybody's rushing out to see who John the Baptist is. And John the Baptist's lifestyle is, is very um, ascetic is the, is the term I can come up with right now. But it's filled with self-denial. And what his application is, even to his preaching and teaching, is also filled with self-denial. Don't charge people more than you're supposed to. If you have two shirts, two tunics, give to the one who has none. Don't uh, be basically be content with your wages. So the application of John's preaching in that day was check yourself. Don't give yourself to this free-roaming kind of religious uh, perspective. He he checks the sinners to say stop doing some things that you're not supposed to be doing. Now imagine the, the camaraderie that must be in the minds and hearts of the Pharisees of the day. This guy is out there preaching like crazy with bugs in his teeth saying things are wrong. Now, don't you think the Pharisees that day would would say, we agree. And this guy's doing great. Look at how committed he is. Look at how serious he is about following the Lord. Look at how much he has to say. Not to mention the fact that John critiques the religious leaders as they come out, right? But John is out there doing it for the Lord. He's out there serious about his faith. And as he preaches and teaches... His conviction, because he's following what the Spirit of the Lord wants him to do, is to call people to repentance. So now the Pharisees bring John as a witness to Jesus, and they say, here's this way of life where the disciples of John are praying and fasting. But what do we know about John's disciples other than they are confessing their sin, they're admitting their need of a Savior... They're saying we have no hope. They're saying they're sinners. They're saying that they need to repent and they need to be forgiven. And the Pharisees take that and say, ah, they're just like us. But now let's consider the Pharisees. The Pharisees, when it comes to fasting, are not concerned with pre- preparation. The Pharisees are concerned with performance. Performance. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins by saying this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you've read that, you can read it later today when you leave. But you'll find out that the very next thing Jesus says is related to the most important religious practices in the Pharisees' world. Giving, praying, and fasting. And each one Jesus takes them to task, saying, This is how you ought to pray, not to be heard and to be seen by a whole bunch of people. But what you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and then when you pray, your father who hears what you do in secret will reward you. When you give, you don't give and sound trumpets to everybody else to let everybody else else know how generous you are. What you should do is make sure that your giving, when it's done by your right hand, isn't known by your left hand. It's in secret. When you fast, you don't fast in such a way to let everybody know how diligent and faithful you are. Rather, comb your hair, wash your face, go out and do your business, and make no big deal about it. But that's not how the Pharisees went about their spiritual life. The spiritual life of the Pharisees was always focused on distinct, being distinct and separate and exalted over other people. So now, what you have at this point are two groups of people who are doing something for the wrong, I'm sorry, one for the right and one for the wrong reasons. Is that ever a problem? Can you be doing good things for the right reasons and for the wrong reasons? Yeah, we all, we all struggle with that, right? Let me talk to you about fasting just for a minute, because you may be thinking, I've never heard of that word before, or nor have I ever done it, which I get. Uh, fasting. Fasting in the Old Testament was only commanded at one time all throughout the Old Testament. The only time the nation of Israel was, committed, uh, was commanded to fast was during the Day of Atonement. So in the Old Testament, when all of God's people got together and the high priest went into the most holy of holy places and sprinkled blood in the most holy place, the whole nation would say, we're going to fast as an expression of our spiritual inability to fix the problems in our life. That's the only other time. Every other time all the way through the Old Testament. Jesus, uh, uh, God's people are commanded to feast, to eat, to enjoy themselves, to be in right relationship with God through the sacrificial system. But when you get fasting outside of kind of the one day a year, you would see that fasting actually has a, a lot more applications, that people fast for a lot of different reasons, not really because they're commanded to but because it explodes from a heart of need and dissatisfaction with the current state of things. So as you move through the Old Testament, you have people fast for the loss of a child. You have people fast for the loss of a king. You have people fast because they've lost a battle. You have Daniel's friends fast for him when he goes to God and asks for the interpretation of the dream. So fasting is this expression of profound dependence and need, kind of a reckless throwing myself on God, saying there's nothing on this earth that I want more than you. But what has happened in Jesus' day is that fasting has not become a declaration of my dependence and need for the Lord, so much so that I want him more than food. Jesus has already fasted in this book, hasn't he? Anna has fasted already in this book praying in Jerusalem as a widow, longing for the redemption of the Lord, where there's this confession of our need and reckless dependence upon him. But what has happened in Jesus' day through the Pharisees' uh, world is that they have taken fasting and they have made it a part of their spiritual practices, so much so that it was viewed as bringing merit and credit to them before the Lord. We know later on in the book of Luke that the Pharisees that goes up to pray along with the tax collector confesses that he fasts, excuse me again, he fasts twice a week. He's committed and he's diligent in his spiritual life. He makes sure that people know that he's fasting. When you get to the New Testament, you know the fasting is never prescribed in the New Testament. It's only described in the Gospels and in Acts. So it's an interesting kind of spiritual practice that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. In fact, you know what's interesting? When you get into uh, fasting is actually a danger in the New Testament pastoral epistles. Paul will say this to Timothy. This is to 1 Timothy 4. He says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Have you ever thought that teachings of demons would result in not getting married and not eating good food? I mean, you may think spiritual false teaching is all over the place and applies to all sorts of things, but it's interesting when Paul tells Timothy that there's a threat. Here's how the teachings of demons show up. Now, Here's the question when it comes to their spiritual life. Jesus, we're the Pharisees. We are the spiritual professionals of the day. And Jesus, don't you see how John's disciples, don't you see how our disciples are all very committed to their spiritual life? We're all very zealous about spiritual things. In fact, we're, we're the most committed in the nation right now. We're the spiritually minded people. We're committed to the most important religious practice of the day. And Jesus, your disciples don't seem to be doing that. What's the deal? How can you neglect such a common and essential and important part of your spiritual life as fasting? There's your question. You with me? Now, Jesus is going to answer, uh, and he's going to answer with an analogy. He's going to answer with a picture, and he's going to invite the Pharisees to consider something by essentially painting a story so that they would see the answer to their question. Because the essential question is whether or not the Pharisees are right in doing what they're doing, or Jesus' disciples are right in doing what they're doing, Right? So let's see Jesus' answer. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now that question is is set up so that the answer would be no. Say no. No. You can't. It's the first, this one's implied, but Jesus is going to give you three no ones. As in, nobody does this. He gives examples so that you would see, like, this is totally irrational. And the first one is here. Imagine getting the groom's side and the bride's side. Imagine paying the chef. I still remember testing the food when we got ready to get married. I still remember the kinds of things that we gave to people to eat. And you can imagine going as bride and groom arrive at the reception and all the guests are seated, and all the food is out, and you go, all right, now, because we love the Lord, we're not going to eat. We're going to fast, and we're going to pray. You know, how fast would you get out of that wedding? <laughs> really? And Jesus's point is essentially that, can you make the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is there? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, imagine, here's what's happening. Levi has just thrown this great feast. There are sinners and tax collectors and people who are longing to know and be in relationship with Jesus, no doubt forgiving, uh, uh, repenting of their sins and finding forgiveness. And Levi has left his whole life behind. And here he is in the middle of the party. And Jesus is looking around saying, can you make all these people be sad and fast when the bridegroom is here? What What is he saying? Imagine, just imagine what it must have been like. At this party with Jesus right in the middle and people receiving forgiveness of sins, leaving their old life and coming to Christ and having new relationship, finding redemption, finding reconciliation, finding the old life that gave them no hope whatsoever is now reversed and restored because of what Jesus has done. Here's Jesus right in the middle of the party where everybody's excited, everybody is joyful and the Pharisees are saying, we're not eating that food. And Jesus said their response is right. You can't make them fast. It's totally inappropriate. Is that your picture of Christianity? Is that your Christianity? Maybe is a better question. When's the last time that you heard someone say, you know who throw the best parties? Forgiven people. Jesus is saying it's right To party. Why? Because I'm here. Now, he doesn't leave it there. Look at verse 35. This is Jesus' first, um, it's your first hint that Jesus knows what's coming. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. probably, I would guess, the time between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. As all of his disciples find that their Savior is no longer with them. But what's interesting about Jesus saying that, just, we know that just the picture you can put in your mind is here we are at the middle of a wedding reception and now the police break in and take the bridegroom away and crucify him. Just the jarring emotional weight of that happening. And Jesus says there's coming a time when they will fast and it will be when I am not here anymore. So did you see what Jesus just did? Jesus just defined spiritual disciplines based around the fact of whether or not he's absent or present, right? That the response of the people is based upon either the presence of Christ or the absence of Christ. That is the controlling nature of the emotional and religious and spiritual response. Which tells you that if your spiritual disciplines are founded and practiced and set upon a foundation of anything other or any one other than Jesus Christ, it will result in a warped and twisted approach to your spiritual life. Now, let's just side point. What is Jesus saying about himself? Not only that he is the source of the party, but he is worth building your life upon. He is worth building the foundation of your spiritual life on the cornerstone, on the rock of his person. And he said, everything else is going to radiate from the fact of our relationship where you have been welcomed in a sinner in right relationship with me. And that has the power to define how we act and how we react and how we experience our Christian life. Now, he doesn't stop there. He also, look at verse 36, tells them a parable which is essentially a story. It's Luke's first use of this term. Typically, parable is used to both conceal and reveal. That's Jesus' use of a parable. To show you something true, but also to conceal it from those who don't want to learn, which you'll see all of that here in this passage. But let's look at, he's going to give you three parables all in a row. One that has to do with a garment, two that has to do with wine and wineskins, and three that has to do with your own personal tastes. So here they go. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So he's just said, nobody makes the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is here. And now nobody does this. No one tears a piece from a new garment. You don't go buy a new shirt and bring it home and start cutting pieces out of it to patch your old shirt. Anybody have old sweatshirts that you don't throw away? Right, you don't go buy a new, buy a new sweatshirt and then start cutting apart the new sweatshirt and, you know, attaching it to the sleeves of your old sweatshirt because you love that sweatshirt so much. Nobody does that. Well, why don't they do that? One, you ruin, that's just his point. One, you ruin the new one. Why'd you spend money on a new one if you're just going to cut it into pieces? But number two, it doesn't match, it doesn't fit, it doesn't align. The, the, Matthew and Mark both talk about the fact that when you take this new fabric and connect it to the old fabric with the tear, that it shrinks and the tear is worse and it ruins both of them. So the illustration that Jesus gives is supposed to be completely foolish and unreasonable. Nobody does this. And that's the point. Let's apply it to the Pharisees' way of life. You can't simultaneously be fasting to demonstrate your own religious piety and your own godliness in your day and time and celebrate the fact that Jesus welcomes broken sinners. Right? You can't do both at the same time. It's oil and water. It's salt and sugar. They don't mix well. They don't fit together. It's a bad application. You can't build your life on your own performance and Christ's performance. They don't work together. See, Jesus comes not to give another kind of legalistic ritual obedience. He comes to fulfill it, get rid of it, and make spiritual life connected to him. To the free grace and forgiveness that's found in Jesus' name alone. Here's your next one. Look at verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, if you are maybe being a seamstress and fabric, and maybe you shrink stuff in the dryer, maybe that illustration doesn't connect with you. Maybe you are into homebrews. So Jesus is going to give you guys who do homebrews an illustration that maybe you can connect with. Verse 37. That's a joke. Are you with me? (laughs) I thought for sure the homebrew joke would... And it hit. It didn't hit. Maybe you already got the point because you, you understand shrinking clothes in the dryer. That's okay. Jesus is redundant. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Here's the thing with wine and wineskins. You've probably never heard somebody say that before. Uh, wine, when they make it, Uh, would be put into a wineskin. Wineskins are typically made of animal hide, which sounds super gross to me. But for some reason, you can take the hide of a small animal, you can take the neck of that animal and the hide, scrape it, clean it, and it's a flexible leather container. So now you can put new wine into this new wineskin. Now, after a course of time, as the wine begins to ferment, it creates gases. Now the gases expand the wineskin and then it contracts as you get rid of the wine. And over time, the wineskin would get less and less flexible. It would get less and less elastic as you have been using this wineskin and fermenting wine in it and then using the wine and getting rid of it, cleaning it, doing it again. So here's what Jesus says. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because the old wineskins by this point have lost their elasticity. They've lost their flexibility. They're brittle. They're already stretched. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So, what's the idea here? The idea is that Jesus is bringing a new way of looking at life. He's bringing new wine. He's bringing a different way of thinking about our religious and spiritual and ethical and moral convictions of his day. And what he's telling the Pharisees by using this illustration is that they are inflexible. Jesus' new wine doesn't fit into the inflexible uh, containers of Judaism. It doesn't work. Now just imagine the Pharisees' spiritual life just for a minute. Do you think there's any movement, flexibility, elasticity, dynamism to their spiritual life? Do you think that? We're only, you know, a few chapters into the book of Luke and already I can imagine that these individuals are not getting invited to parties. I can already imagine that these are the individuals that don't laugh a lot. I can already in my mind think that they have a very, very hard time with people who disagree with them and that their spiritual life has calcified them. They've become more rigid, more conservative, more hard, more difficult to talk to. We already know that they're distancing themselves from a lot of people. And what we know about the Pharisees up to this point is that their religious practices have not brought them into more relationship, but it's pulled them away from relationship. They don't want to be near people, they don't want to talk to people different than them. They want to command other people to do life like we do. Their posture is constant evaluation of others. Have you ever done that? Isn't that exhausting? continual critic of others. I don't want that on my name tag. And here these Pharisees are in their way of life. And Christians, have you have you been stretched in your relationship with Jesus? Have you had to confess some ways in which you were misapplying the truth of the gospel? Have you ever had to, I don't know, ask for forgiveness from your wife? and had to confess there are things that I have done that don't align with the gospel I say I believe. What does it require of you? It requires flexibility. It requires confession. When the new wine comes into your life, what does it do? It changes the container. We become different people. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am the new wine in the fresh wineskin, he's taking people and he's changing their life. He's stretching them, shaping them, molding them, causing them to be people who are able to take the gospel into new places and apply it to new ways with sinners who are new people in new relationships, provide new opportunities to be able to take the gospel into those places, into those societal places where the gospel is needed. This is Jesus' point. This is really the spiritual danger, I think, for all of us who've walked with Jesus for a long time. I was shaped by, by, a, uh, by a man who kind of discipled me and made kind of the, um, the first kind of discipleship. Let me say it a different way. Uh, I was discipled by a guy uh, who I really looked up to and really followed. And a lot of his spiritual practices I adopted. Have you noticed that disciples have been mentioned three times? I mentioned that at the beginning. But why is that mentioned three times? It's mentioned three times because we're all learning from somebody. You know that? We're all being shaped by somebody. We're all being shaped by the convictions of others and the practices of others, and I am no different. And when I read this passage, you know, a lot of my, uh, when, when I, had a, I had knee surgery uh, several years ago, uh, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't run without looking like I was like a duck. Uh, so I was like, I probably got to get this fixed. And I went to the, the um, knee guy. <laughs> Thank you, ortho. Uh, I went to the orthopedic surgeon, And I said, well, you know, how bad is it and what can happen? I can take two, you know, two good running steps and then I can't. I think that's a problem. And he goes, oh, yeah, this happens to a lot of guys who used to be athletes. (laughs) And I still have, I I don't know if you're a, you know, if you're an ex-athlete like I am, uh, I still have that athletic competitor drive. And I don't, you know, Christianity is weird because you don't really know what to do with that. Uh, But I was discipled by a guy who was an ex-D1 football quarterback. And the way he structured his spiritual life was very early morning and very disciplined. So when he said 6 a.m., I thought, right, 6 a.m., that's what you do. When he said, memorize scripture, I said, yep, memorize scripture. That's what I got to do. When he said, read the Bible like this, yep, I got to read the Bible like that. And I began to build these patterns of discipline because if, you know, if you give me a target to hit, I'm going to, you know, go after it till I hit it. And I began to build my Christian life on disciplines on practices of things that I do over and over and over and over and over again. And I find that even today, that even today I get up about 5 a.m., I'm in the Word for an hour, I'm in the garage working out, I eat breakfast, hang out with the kids. That's my routine, that's my rhythm. And inevitably what can happen to our spiritual lives, if you're given to discipline and you're given to wanting to grow, you're going to have to put your hand to the plow and fight for spiritual growth. Amen? You got to do that. Discipline is important in the Christian life. But what I have recognized when I come to a passage like this is now if my spiritual life is primarily about my disciplines, if it's primarily about the things that I do to make sure that all of the rules and the structures and the disciplines are in place and not about a relationship with Jesus, then my spiritual life starts to get hard it starts to get calcified and that people would look in on my discipline and go, look at how disciplined you are. You're working clearly under the power of the Spirit when really what's happening is that I'm committing myself to fleshly discipline. And my patterns of life don't just become a way that people grow in their relationship with God. They become the way. Does that ever happen to anybody else? If that's just me, that's fine. I'm okay confessing before you because I know you love me. I know you're filled with grace. You forgive sinners. We all love following Jesus who forgives sinners. Amen. Right? So, look, I see myself in a passage like this where I can very easily listen to the inner critic in my heart and go, you know what the problem is? It's not that they're sinners. It's that they're undisciplined. So I look at this and I go, here's Jesus saying, I've come to bring new wine and the people who follow me. Who are the people that follow Jesus? They're at the party. Isn't that interesting? Who are the people that follow Jesus? They're welcoming sinners like themselves. Now, there's one more here. You'll see verse 38. This is his point. When new, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins right? When you come to Christ, you give up the right to be inflexible. You now take Jesus's teaching on everything in life. That's what discipleship is, Matthew chapter 28, right? Going to all the earth, teaching them to obey what? All that I've commanded you. So we give up the right to hold to these old ways of living, these old patterns of life. We all come to Christ in need of massive personal revival and change, amen? We all do. Doesn't matter who you are. Levi needs it. I need it. You need it. And Jesus says the fresh wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's your final no one statement. No one treats a wedding like this. No one takes garments and treats them like this. No one does wine like this. You ruin a wedding. You ruin the garments. You ruin the wine and the wineskins. But there's a problem It's in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. That statement feels so out of place. Don't you feel like you could end at verse 38 and you'd get the point? But Jesus, for some reason, lets you know that one of the spiritual dangers that exists in the life of a Pharisee is being content for the wrong reasons. I like what I like. I like this way of life. I like the rigidity of my spiritual life. I like being better than other people. I like having the spiritual practices that make me distinct from other people who are sinners. I like the influence it gives me being a religious leader. I like being able to be a critic and to point out the flaws of other people. And Jesus says, after drinking old wine, no one desires the new. Why? Because he says the old is is good enough. The Pharisees believe that their spiritual life is rooted in being unhappy and uncomfortable to the glory of God. We like it that way. We like being angry and arrogant. And we like not eating on Mondays and Thursdays, which is their fast days. What has happened to these guys? That they've lost. It's like their identity has become permanently fixed in this reticent, angry, bitter faithfulness. And that as Jesus is the center of the party, they can't even see the Messiah right in front of them because they've been blinded by their own performance. And this, guys, is one of the occupational hazards of Christianity. If you walk with, listen, this is what I want. I'm 40, I'll be 46 this year. I want, when I'm 86, to be more flexible and sensitive to Jesus. That's what I want. I want more joy in my life. If I look, I hope I look back on my 40s and go, man, you were sad then, but you're happy now. Man, you were grumpy. But there's joy to be found in Christ. And this is one of the first things I think that this is kind of like the carbon monoxide of the Christian faith. The longer you walk with Christ, you think it's really all about doing these things for Jesus. And Jesus, in this weird way, right in front of the Pharisees, invites the Pharisees to a party and they say, We're not going. How sad is that? Isn't that sad? that Jesus would invite you to a party where all you have to do is confess your need of him. All you have to do is say, "I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness." And what explodes from that party of people who are welcomed in the right relationship with God is Jesus saying that is right. You should party. You should be happy. You should find freedom. You should be forgiven you should respond with all the joy that you can. Which is like, why why else do we come and sing loud on Sunday, right? Why else do we come and do that if not that Jesus forgives sinners? We don't come and make you list all of your spiritual disciplines this week. We come as sinners in need of saving. And the saddest thing about this passage is that we would come to it and find that we can't get into the party because we won't receive the new wine that Jesus offers. So if you've never heard that, boy, if your experience with the church has only been get your act together, clean up before you come in, can I just welcome you to the party in Jesus' name? Can I just say, know the forgiveness and the joy and the reconciliation that's available because Jesus Christ lived and died and was risen again for you? And would we be the kind of church? Imagine if our church was so skeptical, skeptical, that was a terrible word. <laughs> Try again. Kenny, edit that out. Read it out. Imagine if our church was so skeptical of our deeds of righteousness. And at the very same time, so confident of Christ's welcome and forgiveness and love that we exploded with joy. That's the church. What else is the church but that? But a group of people who are desperately convinced of their failure to live up to God's standards, but desperately convinced that Jesus loves them, forgives them, and gives them welcome. Father... We need to be reminded of the new wine of the gospel. We need to be reminded of what it means uh, to follow you into places that maybe because of our background or our wiring or our personalities feel uncomfortable, but they're faithful. That we need the change that you bring. We need to be reminded of forgiveness. We need your freedom. And Father, we want to be a place that holds their arms open and welcome to the fact that sinners can be forgiven by Jesus Christ. What good news that is. Would that joy fill our hearts? And would that characterize this body and in this place? In Jesus' name, amen.